I think the reason why pathologists or laboratorians aren't sexy is because we aren't seen by the patients. And so if we aren't seen by the patients, we're nowhere in the marketing. You know, the patients don't care about us that at, at all. But the reality is that should a patient care about what pathologist assistant cuts their lumpectomy? Heck yes, they they should, right? Because if the pathologist mm-hmm. assistant, you know, if, if that gross room messes up their sample, everything is gone. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank, and this is episode 100. Over the last two years, we've been exploring pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. My guest today for this 100th episode is Dr. Cameron Mirza. Dr. Mirza is a hematopathologist, and he's one of those people that seems to be everywhere, whether that's Path Twitter, Path Elective, various conferences and publications, and so many more things. Today, we're going to talk about his career path, how he got involved in some of these projects, and what he hopes pathology will become in the future. All right, here's Dr. Cameron Mirza. So I want to start back in Pakistan, because that's, that's where you grew up. So can we kind of go back to that time and, uh, you know, as you were growing up there and kind of what, what life was like for you? And then I kind of want to get into how you were inspired to go to medical school. Sure. Thank you. So I actually was born in Pakistan and my parents are both physicians. And so my early childhood, actually till my teen years, was in England uh, because they were doing their postgraduate studies there. So I grew up in England and then moved as an as a young teen, moved back to Pakistan. Uh, growing up was fun. It was the 80s. So, you know, the UK in the 80s, lots of uh, fun music um, that I'm trying to teach my children now. And, um, you know, I had good influences, uh, lots of educators in my family, um, many physicians, not too many, but my parents were both physicians. Uh, and initially, the idea was, well, both my both my physician parents were like, no, there's no way that you're going to do medicine. Uh, please think of something else. You know, we can't fall into that stereotype of South Asian kid, you know, becoming a doctor. Um, <laughs> and I have to, and I have to say, I have to say that I'm, I'm impressed with them. They they tried very, very hard to convince me not to do it. Uh, you know, for many, for many reasons, or, you know, let, let me rephrase that for, to do it for the right reasons and not because that's the only thing that I had seen. In any case, I, I did play around with the idea of doing something different uh, and uh, th- their efforts to convince me obviously failed. Uh, and I ended up uh, going into medical school. What kind of, you said, uh, playing around with things that were different, like what kind of things? Sure. So actually in high school, I was uh, very much in the arts and um, I actually loved it. I love, you know, I'm a very, I mean, I guess I I don't know if I want to say I'm an artistic individual, but I think I am artistic minded. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we we used to play around with doing uh, a bunch of plays. So I used to direct some plays, etc. I was I was good with, you know, Um, you know, kind of had an eye for artistic endeavors. And so one of the things that really piqued my interest was architecture. Uh, And one of the things I was thinking of doing other than medicine was that. So to applying to an art school. In fact, I was actually pretty confused all the way to the end. And I ended up applying in Pakistan to one art school and one medical school. Uh, And I was hoping that if I got into one of them, uh, it would just make the decision for me. In the end, I, I ended up getting into both, which I was, you know, mm. humbled by. But uh, but I decided that art for me is more of a hobby, uh, and really, medicine spoke to my heart. So I ended up uh, ended up doing medicine. 
That's interesting, though, because so many people, I found that so many people in pathology are either have currently or had in the past some kind of artistic interest. No, absolutely correct. In fact, I would even anecdotally say that it, people who choose hematopathology, which is what I do, specifically, I've, I've met many people who have an eye for art in one way or the other. And I think I've tried to, I've tried to keep that eye uh, in the sense that, you know, whatever time I do get, uh, even during medical school, we did do another, you know, a couple of plays, which, you know, in medical school was kind of tough to do, but it was a, an amazing experience. I bonded with so many of my colleagues like that. And then even after after training now here at Loyola Pathology, um, I curate uh, an annual pathology art exhibition. So, you know, we've tried, you know, and if you could see my office right now, you'd probably think I'm crazy because I have a bunch of things on the walls. So I think that th that type of, um, there's an underlying kind of theme of art kind of continuing throughout my career thus far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, just real quick about your parents. You said they were both physicians. Were either of them pathologists? No, they were not. My dad, uh, my dad was um, trained as a GP, like a general practitioner, but then eventually subspecialized in cardiology. My mother, uh, again, started off as a general practitioner. She doesn't practice anymore, but she uh, is actually now in public health. Oh, okay. I see. All right. Now, like, like you said, you went to medical school in Pakistan, and, but then you came to the U.S. for residency. So wh why was it that you decided to come to the U.S.? Sure. Um, so I met my wife in medical school. She she and I graduated together. And, you know, we had a couple of options in front of us. I had seen my parents go to the United Kingdom to train. Um, I had many um, ins inspirations and mentors who had trained in Pakistan. Uh, my wife's sister had trained in Australia and another sister was training in the United States. So, so I guess at that time we had to come to a decision about whether we're going to stay in Pakistan or move abroad to continue training. And at that time, it seemed the decision seemed kind of uh, easy and we were privileged enough to make that decision that, you know, let's go abroad to train. Uh, and at the cross section that we were looking at things, uh, the United States made most sense. And so uh, naturally, the training programs here are really um, well thought out. They're very structured. Uh, there's a pathway to success once you, you know, once you get into them. Uh, so the U.S. and residency training here made sense. Was the plan always to uh, come to the U.S. and stay here or was it come here, get the training and then go back to Pakistan? So it's interesting that you ask that. I think that um, there's always been a part of me where I feel like I want to give back to Pakistan in one way or the other, um, whether that means going back there permanently versus staying here and helping out, you know, I, I think that that's a continual conversation. I think that when I had moved here initially, I think the plans for perhaps going back were a little bit stronger. But I think now, uh, as uh, as time has gone by, and naturally my kids are, you know, getting older and like they're in, you know, they're in educational circumstances where I wouldn't probably want to move them. I, I've realized that going back isn't necessarily the only way to give back to the country. And there are probably multiple other avenues, which, you know, I explore daily now. I kind of want to talk a little bit about your kind of the beginning of residency view or because you've, you've told this story in other places and I don't know if you want to go through it again, but there, I know there was some difficulty with you getting your residency spot and then losing it and then mm -hmm. getting another one. Would you be willing to kind of tell that story again? Of course. Absolutely. So, so when I graduated 
medical school. Uh, we, you know, in Pakistan, we didn't have that opportunity at the time to take the USMLE qualifying examinations during training, which uh, other American students do. And so my wife and I, we got married and we actually spent a year doing, you know, some medicine related jobs, but then also studying for the USMLE examinations. But by that fall, when it was time to apply for residency, um, you know, we had we had our firstborn already and my wife already didn't have visa issues. She had a green card. And so we figured that I will go ahead uh, this first time around instead of us couples matching together, I will go ahead and apply for the match. Uh, and then she, wherever I get my, uh, wherever I match, she will eventually try and match in uh, that same area. So it, it seemed to make sense at the time. So I went through the whole rigmarole of get, applying for, interviewing for, and eventually matching in a residency program. It was in Chicago. Uh, and everything was set. I paid for housing, got everything together. You know, my license was being approved, et cetera. And at the time, there were there was a bunch of things that happened. But long story short, my visa did not come in time. And actually, let me rephrase that. It did come in time, but there was, at the time, there was a terrorist attack in London with the subway bombing in 2005. And what they, what ended up happening was the United States recalled a bunch of visas that they had given to Pakistani citizens um, at the time, you know, over the last three months, which included my visa. And at the time, we didn't know how long it would take to be reissued. They said that it would be security clearance, et cetera. And my institution that had matched me, they were aware of this happening in the background. And unfortunately, unfortunately, they kind of rescinded my contract because technically I was not in the United States when residency started. And mm -hmm. they gave that spot to an unmatched candidate. And um, as a result, I lost that spot. I got my visa two days later. Um, so that really stung. It was uh, probably the worst, worst time of my professional existence uh, by far. Uh, you know, I had worked really hard towards it. And, and I'm sure many other medical students who are listening, or any other type of student really, who's listening, th that have a goal in mind that, you know, this is what we're going to do. And these are the steps that we're going to, you know, work hard towards. And then eventually you achieve the goal that you're going to achieve. And then it's kind of taken away from you for reasons that are out of your control. It's definitely not a fun experience. In any case, so that pivoted, you know, I pivoted and decided that I want to do some research and then uh, started as a postdoc uh, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, my wife uh, came with me with, with our firstborn and we started living here in Chicago and my wife matched for med medicine residency and then went through that process of residency and fellowship. And I moved from a, a postdoc position to doing uh, graduate studies, uh, a PhD in vascular and lung biology. And then I started residency after, um, again, after that uh, graduate program. So I was kind of technically, quote unquote, delayed for four years because that's the time I spent in graduate school. But, you know, looking back, I think it was a not that I would have loved for it to happen again, uh, but I think that that experience definitely uh, changed uh, the direction of my career trajectory. Uh, and I'm, you know, for lack of a better word, I, I think I'm grateful for that experience that, that happened because I think that it it solidified that I wanted to do pathology, number one. Uh, it gave me a, a, a bunch of educational kind of a framework of research, obviously because of my PhD. It probably improved my application because now I was applying as an MD-PhD. Um, and I think that it just gave, you know, allowed us time to be with our firstborn in a way that we couldn't have been if we were both in residency. And so I, I look back at that time and I always think about it as, you know, I really could not have predicted that that happened. But 
as cliche as it sounded, it, it kind of happened for a reason. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we learned lessons from it. Yeah, that's interesting. Like looking back on some of those, in, like you said, sort of the worst experiences of your life, but you do, you do gain something positive out of those experiences sometimes. That's correct. I mean, I would actually venture out to say all of the time, you know, I mean, I, I know it seems it seems strange to think so because there's some some probably situations where you can't really see a, a positive at all. But it isn't necessarily that it's a positive. I think that the 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 bottom line is that it's almost always a lesson, right? And so some lessons are learned the hard way, some lessons are learned the easy way. So it's not that there's a, a silver lining to every gray cloud. You know, you can put it like that, but. You know, think of the pandemic, you know, what a horrible time we're going through. Uh, but we've learned so many lessons uh, in, in about so many things. Many yeah. of them are bad lessons, right? But but many of them are good, right? About the ways that we can do things differently that we never thought of in the past. And I think that my philosophy because of that experience has been that we can always come out with a lesson and kind of mold our thinking uh, to be more effective or more efficient or happier or what have you, you know, take time to savor what you have because kind of things at the end of the day really aren't in our control. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and kind of the reason I wanted to go through this story was for anybody listening who, I mean, if you look at your your career path and, and where you are now and how the, it was possible that that never would have happened from you losing your residency spot. So for anybody that's listening, I, I want them to be inspired by your story that, you know, even through that kind of struggle, you can still get through it and you can still succeed after that i you know i mean i think that if this story and my sharing it helps even one individual who may be struggling with you know with the wrench in the wheel that they did not expect would have happened or uh yeah and i completely agree with you i think that that pause uh before training and then ultimately what i ended up doing where i ended up going i to this day my wife and i still think about it often actually uh in a in a very positive light that you know if those th- th- those experiences hadn't happened then everything would have been different right i mean would have would it have been better or worse i don't know but i i just assume uh that all of the good things that have come about at least that's how i try and justify it all of the good things that have happened thus far have been because of that background and and that horrible time in the summer of 2005 is a pivotal piece of that story. So, you know, without that, it wouldn't have happened. I, I had a lot of things in in my career at the beginning that things happened sort of by accident and, yeah. and other opportunities kind of fell into my lap and I managed to know enough to take them. And I think about that too, like th- things could be very different for me. So yeah, so I, I understand that line of thinking for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right, Let's let's talk about fellowships then because I think you did, what, three of them? <laughs> I mean, Which, te- yeah, technically, so technically, yes, I did, you know, I, I guess we can call them two and a half. Okay. Uh, so I did hematopathology. So let's start there. Uh, I did not know going into pathology what subspecialty I would like to do. I was playing around with the idea of like, you know, pediatric pathology. I really liked uh, gynecologic pathology. 
Uh, and this was all kind of before I went into my hematopathology rotation. So at the University of Chicago, where I did residency, uh, we have, at least at that time, there was a three-month rotation that you did uh, one time during your four years. You could always go back to do an elective extra month, but effectively the core rotation was three months. So I went into this rotation with two of my very good friends, uh, Viju, Dr. Vijay Lakshmi and Anthana Ryanan, who is our program director here at Loyola Medicine, and Charlie or Dr. Charles uh, Van Slambrook, who is a, a, a pathologist in the Chicago area now. Uh, and we all went into this rotation kind of, you know, at different levels of knowledge. I have to admit that mine was the worst level of knowledge. Charlie and Viju definitely knew more than I did uh, when it came to hemepath. Um, and I have to say that the University of Chicago hematopathology section is a is a, a marvelous section. It is world-renowned. You know, so many things were described there. You know, it kind of gives me nerdy goosebumps to think about, you know, those, you know, that basement, you know, area where all these fantastic uh, things were discovered. You know, including including things such as Dr. Janet Rowley, who you know who discovered the nine twenty two translocation. Uh, you know, I mean, all of that work kind of happened there, and I went in literally very naive to anything hematopathology, and I came out of those three months knowing for sure that I want to do hemopath. So it is a hundred and ten percent credit to that section, uh, to Dr. Jim Vardaman and Dr. John Anastasi, who you know who trained me, uh, and I think that. Really, it was just it was a life changing kind of rotation for me. And so there was no looking back. Uh, I did do my second fellowship was medical education, research, innovation, teaching and scholarship or merits. Uh, so the University of Chicago has a fantastic uh, medical education teaching kind of consortium. And part one of the things that they offer, um, you know, on an application based system is a merits fellowship. So in that fellowship, I kind of learned the you know concepts of curriculum design, evaluation, you know, the the history of medical education in this country. Uh, we had projects that we did, et cetera. And so that wasn't a whole year that I spent separately. It was concurrent to, you know, one of my years of residency education. And then in my last year of residency training, uh, my my residency fellow, uh, residency director, Dr. Alia Hussain, she was also, she is also the director of the pulmonary fellowship, uh, pulmonary pathology fellowship. And uh, at, for some reason, the fellow that she had lined up uh, decided to do something else. And so we were left with a, a situation where we didn't have a pulmonary pathology fellow. Now, the pulmonary pathology fellowship at the University of Chicago is a surgical pathology fellowship that has a pulmonary pathology focus. I didn't do that complete fellowship. I only uh, covered the pulmonary pathology portion. And so I did get pretty uh, you know, good at thoracic pathology uh, specifically. So it wasn't a full surgical pathology fellowship. It was just thoracic pathology. So, yep. So in the five years that I was there, I was able to do, you know, residency in APCP, heme path merits, and pul like very specifically pulmonary pathology. So it was a um, fantastic experience. Heme path, especially, I mean, this is from from my perspective anyways, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm not a d doctor or pathologist, but it seems like hemopath is probably one of the most, I would say complex of the subspecialties with the uh, exception of maybe bone and soft tissue, but it's, it's definitely up there. You know, I agree. I think that, you know, people think about, I think that all pathology subspecialties are becoming more and more inclined to including genetic uh, subclassifications. And I think mm -hmm. hemopath was yeah, one of yeah. the first ones that did it. And so, it, you know, it really, 
I, I think of it in two ways. When I when I started training, it was very overwhelming. It it seemed that, oh my goodness, there's no way I can wrap my brain around this. But ultimately, I think that if you get exposed to it, it, it I agree with you that the ancillary testing make, make it kind of complex, but also in a way it makes it easier, right? Because you have an algorithm to follow. And if you have that algorithmic approach and you know you can kind of think about things one by one and rule in or rule out entities, and you know, it's a very beautiful thing to look at. I think that it really does marry the best of anatomic and clinical pathology where you're looking at aspirate smears, you're obviously working in a laboratory, uh, you're looking at lymph nodes, so you're looking at tissue, uh, you know, you're working with genetics, you're working with flow cytometry, uh, you have a very close relationship to your patient-facing colleagues in the hematologists. So I think that it really checks uh, or checked all the boxes that, you know, I found interesting in pathology training and a pathology career. So it was a no-brainer for me. Okay. Yeah. I guess I didn't think of it that way. It's kind of the best of, of, of all worlds in, in pathology. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, when you look at aspirate smears, that's cytology, right? That's technically uh-huh. cytopathology. Uh, when you look at lymph nodes, that's kind of core surgical pathology. Uh, when you look at, you know, when you evaluate bone marrow flow cytometry specimens or like you look in this, at the CBCs, that's very hardcore uh, laboratory medicine or clinical pathology. And so while in general, hemopath is almost always considered CP, I would actually venture out to say that it's actually a very nice hybrid of both AP and CP. So that's mm-hmm. my little plug. That's my little plug for any trainees uh, to consider, uh, you know, heme path. And if they if they want to consider AP, they they shouldn't rule it out. Okay, I like that. That's good. Now you mentioned the the fellowship in medical education research, innovation, teaching, and scholarship. And I want to talk about this for for a couple of minutes because I mean, this sort of pathway is it's a lot of the things that you've been doing since then. The, the teaching aspect. So at the time that you were doing this fellowship, was was teaching something that you wanted to do or did that come later? You know, I actually think that teaching was almost always part of what I wanted to do. In fact, it was perhaps one of the reasons that really uh, made me decide me- uh, medicine overall, because I think that physicians are naturally kind of teachers, right? Whether they be mm, teaching yeah. their patients about their disease or teaching medical students or graduate students or what have you, right? I mean, I think that a part and parcel of that knowledge that you gain in medicine, the beauty of that knowledge is to pass it on, right? So we've seen individuals kind of teach us uh, within like, you know, our training programs. And then I think it behooves us to teach others. And I think that that was really a core concept of why I think I did medicine. And, and, you know, similar to, so for example, I always think of my graduate degree, right? So do I, do you need to do a PhD in order to be a good researcher? The answer is no. There are many, for example, MDs, uh, you know, who do research and are very, very successful, correct? And, you know, there are many MD, PhDs who do it and are successful, and there are many PhDs who do it and are successful. Uh, So would an MD need to do a PhD to do research? I think the answer is no. But does it allow you to think about science with a, in a framework the answer is yes so for for individuals like me i mean there are some very talented very gifted individuals who wouldn't have to even do a structured degree to have like multiple grants and you know multiple awards and and kudos to them i don't think that i was one of them i definitely needed um definitely needed that framework of understanding of how science would work and so i think for me that phd was helpful and the reason i'm mentioning that is because of my the fellowship in medical education so do you really need a fellowship to teach well? Well, no, you don't. I mean, they're, you know, they're natural born teachers, I would say some people who just have an ability to impart or communicate what they want to teach to their students without necessarily a formalized training program. But do formalized training programs allow you to get, you know, or give you a framework on which you can kind of build your success or improve 
Absolutely. So I think that, you know, the things that you kind of informally, we all do, like you do, I do when, whenever we're uh, dealing with trainees, as we're thinking about the curriculum, right? We have goals and objectives. We have a way to impart the education to them. And we want, we are looking for feedback and we want evaluation, right? And so, and if we think of effective use of pedagogy, right? I mean, we can kind of do it informally or ju it just happens. But if we have a more formalized training behind it, I think that it just allows us to improve that process multifold. And so I think that, you know, I always wanted to be, uh, recognized maybe, or a, a part of a significant portion of my career, I wanted it to be uh, teaching. And so I think that that fellowship definitely helped me formalize how I approach that uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. All right, let's 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 kind of turn to something that's a little bit more, say, informal. A lot of people that are listening, are they're going to know you uh, from Twitter because you're one of the most, uh, should I say, popular uh, people on pathology Twitter. Well, that's, that's kind. <laughs> most well, most well I, I known. We'll say I that. don't know if it's true, but yeah, that's kind. That's good. Okay, we let, let's keep it like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so let, let's go back in the be beginning of that. Like, how did you discover that the Twitter and how it could be used for pathology? Uh, it's perfect segue. So it was during the Merits Fellowship, actually. Uh, the Merits Fellowship, uh, my program directors uh, were Dr. Vinnie Aurora, who is currently the dean of the Pritzker School of Medicine, uh, you know, and she and Dr. Barrett Frommy, who are both my uh, program directors for the Merits Fellowship. And one of the things that Dr. Aurora always promoted was social media. So you should follow her. Her, her handle is at FutureDocs. Uh, Dr. Vinnie Aurora was basically the one who introduced me to medical education, uh, Twitter. Twitter. So Meta Twitter is huge, obviously, right? There are so many things that are happening there and have been happening for many, many years. And what, at the time, actually, this was kind of, you know, this was before the Jared Gardner, Sarah Jiang, amazing era, which, you know, I'm kind of a student of. But I think mm -hmm. that at that particular time, there was there was no real path Twitter, so to speak, right? And then so that's so I was introduced to Twitter through my through my you know kind of foray into medical education you know formalized framework but then uh, there was you know and so then it kind of not that it fell over, fell away but it wasn't like number one priority for my day to day working you know i was trying to understand it and and i think that at the time i was just kind of lurking you know and i tell everyone right now who's starting on social media that lurking is not such a bad thing learn from what other people are doing because right. there is an inertia sometimes to kind of you know putting yourself out there and so seeing what other people do is often a really great way of uh, of realizing what your style will be. So I was lurking in the medical education world and not necessarily full-blown into the path Twitter world. And then I happened to attend a conference in Houston in which uh, Dr. Jared Gardner, who uh, is now a, a very, uh, very, you know, kind of... Um, it's like uh, it's like a Twitter bromance that happens. You know, everybody knows about it. <laughs> so Jer Dr. Gardner at the time, I did not know him at all, gave a talk about, you know, his work with Facebook and like, you know, patient groups and what he's done with social media. And I was completely blown away. I mean, I already knew the value of social media and medical education. I had just never put two and two together. And so since then, Dr. Jared Gardner, and then I know he's worked a lot with Dr. Sarah Chiang, and, you know, they both kind of taught about social media and pathology, you know, the, so, the, you know, the social pathologist, all of this stuff, the courses that they've given, and both of them are very, very dear and close friends of mine now. And 
and I think that I learned a lot from them. So I'm really their student in that sense that, you know, we were able to, you know, kind of learn from them. You know, we, we've been able to teach together, you know, things to people. And so I think that, uh, you know, there was a lull a little bit. I, I, I joined the social media sphere and then there was a little bit of a lull and then I kind of learned from them and then was able to perhaps work on my own presence or kind of decide what I want to put out there for any followers that I may have. Uh, and so, yep, it's probably, you know, if, if people have seen me there, it's a mix of hematopathology education, kind of building bridges with our patient-facing colleagues. Uh, definitely part of what I want to do is the pathology pipeline. So trying to engage with medical students and, uh, you know, explaining to them what um, pathology and laboratory medicine are, that you know, what types of fields they are. You know, interprofessional education, as you may know, I'm, I'm a program director of a medical laboratory science program here at Loyola, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and so working with ASCP and, you know, kind of the interprofessional uh, stuff. Now you can use it for diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, the work that we're doing is kind of global and, you know, uh, social media is a great avenue platform to kind of disseminate it broadly. So, you know, I know social media has a dark side and, you know, as, as long as you can stay away, stay clear from that dark side, I think that it can be it can be a force for good. Yeah, that's funny. Like I tell a lot of people about, you know, I, you know, I'm I, I'm trying to be active on Twitter and everybody's like Twitter. Why? You know, everybody thinks it's like, I don't know, celebrities and like crazy politicians or something. But when you're using it for something that's specific, like medical education or pathology, it really is a very useful platform. And it's very easy to use. I completely agree. I think that, you know, pathology is a very visual thing, right? Whether it be looking at gross specimens that, you know, pathologist assistants are putting together, looking at different values in the laboratory, uh, looking at histologic images, right? As long as we are, uh, you know, giving a nod to patient privacy, I think it's a fantastic tool. It's a way to collect really rare things from all across the globe, right? I mean, we may not see malaria here at all. And in African mm -hmm. countries, malaria might be very common. And if people are all on Twitter, we'd be seeing cases, uh, you know, here that we, you know, they don't see there and we'd be seeing cases there that we don't see here. So the idea is that it's really, I mean, it's a universal classroom, right? It's a universal classroom where everybody can come in and teach. And, and speaking of teaching, I mean, I knew you use Twitter in, in your teaching um, and you came up with hashtag Twitter homework. So uh, tell me about this. How did, how did you come up with that idea? Sure. So uh, we, you know, I direct our pathology elective here at Loyola Medicine. And one of the things that I found was that our students are obviously very engaged once they come into the elective. But I realized that pathology is not structured the same way as regular medicine, quote unquote, right? So if you think of medicine, surgery, etc., like, the, you know, students are walking around with other physicians, and they're rounding on patients. And like, you know, there's a lot of like, time where, you know, they may be walking the halls or walking from one patient to the other patient. And like these are curbside points where they can continue to be engaged with their, with their physician colleagues, right? And so what I've realized in pathology is that when you kind of sign out, you're there, you're sitting and you're chatting and you talk about the patient and, you know, you talk about life and it's a beautiful kind of environment. But then once sign out is over, you're kind of like twiddling your thumbs, right? I mean, there's an in-between time, right? When you're waiting for sign out or you're reviewing a case and you're kind of alone, right? And I don't want students to be in silos when they are in our department. And so one of the things I thought of, you know, a couple of years back was, you know, why not 
extend their classroom into the social media space. And I decided that, you know, one of the things that they can do to keep engaged, you know, keep being engaged with not only pathology, but also with me as their elective director was to do Twitter homework. And, you know, we've published about this, so I'm sure, you know, uh, listeners right now can go find the the papers about it. One is in The Pathologist, uh, you know, Mm. and the idea is that they basically have to tweet or retweet one pathology-related thing every day. And if it's something that they've learned themselves or a pearl of wisdom, that's ideal. Otherwise, they can literally just search the word hashtag kind of pathology and just retweet whatever they like. So it isn't like very high stakes and it's not forced. So it's not compulsory, definitely not compulsory. It's just an added, you know, an added kind of tool. And what we realized with some of the data that we have out there is that it's definitely been very, you know, the response has been extremely positive. Students have learned a lot. They've been exposed to pathology Twitter like this. They've been exposed to the fact that the laboratory is more than just pathologists, that they're pathologist assistants and medical laboratory scientists, et cetera. And so I think that, you know, it has given, uh, you know, opened up a door where you can effectively see the entire interprofessional laboratory space. And so I think that these medical students, once they finish their elective, you know, hopefully they become pathologists, but if they don't, that's no problem because they will be better informed physicians and being better informed about the laboratory, you know, is probably the best gift we can give them. Yeah. I, I, I've talked to a lot of people that, that have that same opinion, like having other, having doctors and other specialties that know about the laboratory is a, is a really good thing. And it's very helpful for, for all of us and, and for the patients, of course. Correct. Yeah. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Cameron Mirza. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Cameron Mirza on the People of Pathology podcast. All right. Probably one of your your biggest projects, at least more recently, has been Path Elective, which has become very popular. And I know you're, you, you're the one of the co-founders, along with Cullen Lilly, uh, who, who I had on the podcast, uh, I think, last year. So what was the origin of the idea for Path Elective? How did that come about? Well, Path, I mean, Path Elective was a passion project. It kind of came out of nowhere a little bit, I, I have to say. Basically, the pandemic hit. And when, when the pandemic hit, it's similar to Twitter homework. I was just sitting as a pathology elective director wondering, well, you know, how can we make sure that there's continuity of pathology education here within our department? Really, I was thinking kind of, uh, kind of local. I wasn't really even thinking global at the time. And uh, Cullen is a superstar, um, as I'm sure you know. He, you know, was yeah. uh, an M1 going into M2 at the time, and you know, he was he had already uh, received a, 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 I don't know if it's a grant or not, but he was honored with being a star. Like you know, we have a star program, STAR, and the star program basically allows uh, an M1 student to work during the summer with a mentor. And him, him and I had worked with our microbiology director and he had a project going, right? Basically. So he was going to come in that summer and do that project. And that project kind of had to be put on the side because of uh, the you know p- initial pandemic and the fact that everything was basically shutting down. And so Cullen had some time on his hands where I wanted to make sure that we, we, you know, we don't waste his time given that we were responsible for that project. So one day I was basically thinking about the idea that, well, you know, let's 
perhaps try and create an elective experience that is virtual. And, you know, we do have a virtual elective at Loyola, uh, but I asked Cullen, you know, hey, Cullen, have you ever made a website? And he said, no, Dr. Mears, I haven't. And I said, I haven't either. But I was like, are you interested in making one? And, you know, this guy, he is unbelievably brilliant. And, you know, we worked together uh, during that whole like couple of months. And naturally, again, we turned to social media and found like over 50 collaborators. We gave them the framework of what we're trying to develop. And, you know, while it was him and I uh, at kind of like, you know, the champions of the things, it obviously was, you know, there's no I in team. It was definitely a team project and it just took off. And I think that initially there there may have been hesitation uh, locally within our own kind of institution as to whether this can be a proper LCME accredited kind of project. And I was like, that's fine. We don't have to have it be regional, like, you know, or, or institutional. This can be global. And I think that just because of the fact that we, you know, I mean, it, it was out there. And then as long as you have an internet connection, anyone in the world can effectively use it. And so I wasn't even thinking how global it would become. But, you know, we have hundred, like, you know, not hundreds of thousands, but like almost like like nearly 100,000 users, if not more. Uh, and, you know, we have thousands of page views every day. People from pretty much every country in the world, apart from perhaps three or four countries, uh, have uh, have used the website. You know, the content is absolutely free. We've either curated it to be part of the curriculum that we've developed. And, you know, if we have, you know, if something was already freely available uh, through, for example, Jared Gardner's, you know, YouTube videos or, you know, the Society for Hematopathology's kind of lectures. And if something is already available out there, we just put it as part of our curricular framework and we link to it, right? So we don't own any of the stuff that, you know, the people who created it own it, but we link it to the correct resources. So it's just another avenue of getting to their amazing material. And I think the response has been overwhelmingly amazing. I think that, you know, for the second continuous year, the residency process has been virtual. And I and I realized that people are looking for avenues to learn more pathology. And I think that they're, they're attempting these modules and getting certificates has been really, you know, helpful for them. And I get messages of support, like thanks and gratitude. And it's so overwhelming uh, that, you know, something that we were able to put together has been so helpful globally. So I'm I'm very humbled by the fact that we were able to put it together and by its success. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that just looking through the, the website, it's, it's amazing the amount of material. Um, and now you mentioned that you get certificates for, for doing these modules. Is this like actual, like credit? Or is it like, how does that work? I don't, I don't quite understand that part. Yeah, so we have absolutely. So every module has a pre and a post quiz. If students or participants take the pre and post quiz, they automatically in their email with which they registered, they get a like a PDF certificate that they completed the module. Now, technically, you know, could they fake it and not, you know, so it is an honor system pretty much. And uh, that certificate effectively means nothing other than the fact that if the honor system is working, they've gone through that course. Now, a lot of people had confusion about what that meant. And as an educator and also as an associate program director for the residency here, I wanted to make sure that it's clear what, what that means. And so we have a section on the website for educators, which kind of explains, you know, what, what that certificate means. And so we've, uh, we've specifically guided our, uh, users that this isn't supposed to be like in the ERAS application for residency. It's not that they did the whole elective, but they can put it under miscellaneous or hobbies or, you know, something like something small. But I think that it does still add value because 
you know, individuals who are assessing their applications will see that instead of the pandemic completely holding everybody back, and obviously people weren't necessarily able to come do in-person electives, but if you've been on this website and have some certificates, then at least it shows that, you know, you had some impetus, right, as opposed to doing nothing at all. And so the value of a certificate is kind of small. I think the value of the website and the education that we're imparting is greater. And to make sure that there's no confusion, we put that on the website, uh, you know, under the four educators tab as to what it means. So there are some students, I saw myself in applications this year, who have exaggerated what that is uh, in their applications. And that's kind of unfortunate that they're doing that. But I think that all educators kind of at this particular cross-section in the United States, at least many of them are familiar with the website and what it represents. So I think, uh, you know, so I think that they know what it means. So I think that in general, it's a great resource for some free pathology education. I would say that students or trainees who are applying for residency uh, should use that and put it in their application somewhere like small, like miscellaneous, extra or other, right? I mean, just kind of as a small aside. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know that right now, program directors know what that effectively means, right? So there's really no way to exaggerate it to make it something that it's not. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, at the very least, I guess it shows that there you have an interest in pathology and you're you're trying to learn more. I wonder though, like you mentioned that other residency directors, you know, know what it is. Do you ever have people kind of question what you're doing, like sort of in a, a, a kind of a, like a negative way, like they think you're doing the wrong thing or something like that? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that they probably aren't. I'm sure there are some people who are, you know, look, you know, listen, you will always find, even with the best of intentions, you will always find someone who's going to like, you know, lift a finger at you and be like, oh, what you're doing? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? You know, I'm so, but have I really faced any backlash for it? No, uh, we were very careful to partner with the right people, ask all the permissions that we needed to ask for. And, and, you know, kind of really put it out there about, you know, and be very transparent about what this represents. So within that, I, I don't think Alan or I, at least I, I'm not aware of any backlash that's been really negative, which, you know, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx it. Um, so far, I've only heard good things from students and uh, good things from residents. You know, junior residents use these uh, modules a lot because it's kind of a quick access to pathology. Uh, mm -hmm. And actually, I've heard great things from even program directors who who are like, you know, kind of who are not thankful isn't the word, but. But, you know, who, you know, who are very happy that at least there's something out there, you know, for for their uh, to be trainees. OK, I see. Yeah. So you seem to have a like a natural gift for collaboration. And and this is a good example of that. I mean, like you, you mentioned, kind of recruiting the contributors. There's what, over 50 now. Is this like it seems like every project you have, you kind of come up with the idea and then you somehow get a lot of people to work with you on these things. Is this kind of something that you, is a characteristic you've always had? You know, I think so. I mean, I think there are definitely things that I've done alone and they've been reasonably successful. But I think that as I'm growing in age and hopefully in wisdom, I'm realizing that, you know, the more the merrier, really. I think that more mm -hmm. people bring a tremendous value to projects because they bring different points of view. They bring diversity of opinion, diversity of thought, diversity of innovation. And I think that if, you know, people try to do, you know, there are certain things definitely that I want to do alone that kind of are like my pet projects where I don't want anyone really to kind of change the way I'm approaching things. But those are very rare. 
Very, very rare. Those effectively, I would say that the only time I would use that type of strategy would be an opinion piece or a perspective, which is just mine. You know what I'm saying? Like there's nothing, you know, I mean, because that's basically where I'm coming from. But other than that, I think that there's value in building teams and, you know, uh, building, uh, you know, situations where multiple people can, you know, can kind of participate in things. And I think that that's kind of part of like the way I mentor also the idea that, the mentorship piece or the sponsorship piece, there's so many people who are so excellent, right? I mean, I'm literally like the, the least of, of those groups, but you're, you're right. If, if my legacy ends up being that I was a builder of collaborations, you know what? Amen. I'm happy with that. No, no worries. I think that that, that would be a great legacy to leave. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. That's, that's great. The next thing then, speaking of more collaborations, the International Collaborative of Pathologists. And I know, I know you're one of the kind of the founders of, of this as well. So can you tell me about this organization and so kind of what, what the goals of it is are? Sure. So, you know, I, I was one of the people who was invited early on to kind of participate in the International Collaborative of Pathologists. And I think that, you know, uh, as a bottom line, effectively, what we've realized is that the misconceptions surrounding the pathology laboratory, uh, the pathology pipeline are global, right? So, you know, individuals in, in Australia and Europe and England and the United States and, you know, South America, like everywhere, right? I mean, basically, mm-hmm. we have the same issues. And so the question or the goal or the vision uh, for the International Collaborative Pathologists was to see, well, you know, how can we, you know, kind of globally put our minds together and create a, a, a process where we come up with either, you know, promotional materials or educational programs, you know, that are across all these pawns, right, where we're sitting in our little silos, but our problems are the same. So I would say in a nutshell that it's a bunch of like-minded pathologists from around the world who are putting their minds together to come up with innovative ways or learning from one another, right? Like what has, you know, the UK done, right, which, you know, the US can learn from, or what has the US done that they can collaborate with Australia on, right? And so we have, uh, you know, student councils, and, you know, these are student leaders, which are obviously in medical school. Um, You know, we have pathologists in different subspecialties, we have pathology that's being practiced a little bit differently in different parts of the countries, you know, of their local countries. So I think that there's value in that, you know, in that collaborative strength, again, you know, obviously talking about collaboration, and so I think that what we, you know, we're kind of in our infant stages as to, you know, we have a board together, we have a student council, and they've been putting out memes about, you know, what the misconceptions in pathology are. And we've been, you know, we've tried to put together some webinars, etc. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's kind of a global alliance, I would say, of, uh, of like-minded pathologists that are working to uh, negate those uh, wrong stereotypes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And and yeah, like I, I've, I've talked to some a few other people in in some other countries, and you're right, they have, it's the same issues, uh, the same lack of recognition and all, all those things like that. Is there some kind of like really grand project like in the future for the International Collaborative of Pathologists? I mean, is there some kind of like international conference or some kind of huge project that, that's kind of on the horizon or is it too early to tell with that? So I would say that uh, it might be too early and that also maybe your listeners just need to stay tuned. <laughs> oh, interesting. Surprises, All right. surprises. Yeah. All right. But it is kind of a little I'll bit it. it is kind of a little bit early, but I'm pretty certain that something fun is about to happen on that front as well. Oh, great. All right. Well, we look forward to that. We, you're involved in so many things and and let's be real. I mean, we've only talked about just a, a few of them. There are so many more. 
that they had to cut down in the interest of time. But I'm curious if being involved in all these things, doing all these things and collaborating with all these different people, like, does that ever get overwhelming for you? I mean, do you ever want to just kind of go to work and sign out your cases and, and like go home and binge net, Netflix or something like that? So there are definitely days where I want to go home and binge Netflix. Um, but but I think that, you know, and Dr. Sarah Zhang and I've talked about this a lot. I think that, you know, we do kind of some of us do work with like, let's just say that we have all of our burners on right in the kitchen, like all the burners are on. So you have to kind okay. of be careful if all the burners are on. You know, sometimes it's better to kind of, you know, dim one of the burners while the other burners are full throttle. You know what I'm saying? So I do agree that, it, you know, there's a it's a I think that if I look at how I function, I think it is a little bit of a delicate balance. And I just have to be careful that something that I wasn't expecting doesn't throw the whole thing out of whack. Right. I mean, the pandemic has thrown everything out of whack, for example. Or, you know, if if there's, you know, something that I need to attend to at home, which needs more attention than I was, you know, originally thinking it requires. So there's definitely a constant, um, you know, adjustment of which burner needs to be stronger and which burner needs to not be strong. So I think that having a well-balanced approach to professional life and personal life is very important. And I think the reason I'm mentioning it kind of broadly is because wellness is different or balance is different for everybody. You know, your balance for how, what you want to do in your personal life is different from my balance. And then, you know, for example, there's some people who abhor checking their email, you know, when they on the weekend. I don't mind. I don't mind that on Saturday, Sunday morning, you know, after I've had my coffee, if I have two minutes, I just check my email, I update myself and I, you know, I'm good to go. It's not that I'm going to spend hours on it. Right. But for Mm -hmm. me, being on top of those things repletes me being a part of social media and collaborating with teams and developing websites. It repletes me. It's part of my wellness. I don't think of it as work. So if it was depleting me, right. So for example, if these were things that sucked out energy in a way where I needed time to recover, then I totally understand it. And that that might be true for other people, right? So, you know, I am on, you know, my screen time is like three hours a day or something like crazy, right? So that's a lot, right? I mean, whether that be checking email or be on, or, you know, or be on Twitter or what have you. But I feel like, you know, I, my balance you know, on a day-to-day basis works. There will be some days where I'm not posting anything, just looking. There'll be some days where I'll post a lot. Uh, There'll be some days where my collaborative work will take up most of my day. And then there'll be weeks where I'm not thinking about that collaborative work because I'm just working on day-to-day cases. So I think balance is different for different people. Wellness is different for different people. For me, all these projects kind of are repleters of energy rather than depleters. And so you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm a superhuman or anything, but everyone has a balance. And the definitely there have been times in my life where, where the balance has completely been thrown out of whack. And then I've fallen behind on certain things. And, you know, it's just about prioritizing. So to me, I'm a list maker right now. I have a list in front of me of like the things that are my priorities today. Uh, mm-hmm. And as long as I get all of those priority things done, which include personal or professional things, then I can continue to thrive with these collaborative projects. Okay, I see. Yeah, that's true. I mean, wellness and uh, priorities are different for different people. And even, you know, just yourself personally, I mean, that that might change over time, you know, depending on what else you've got going on as far as what's what's a priority to you at, at any particular moment. Correct. Now, I want to kind of look back at sort of, you know, we talked about your kind of struggle getting into residency. And I wonder if 
that that the memory of that kind of is part of what drives you to keep doing all these other things like to help out somebody who might be going through that same situation right now is that does that have anything to do with it you know that's interesting that you bring that up there are times when i view certain applicants or certain situations and i go you know, I was stuck once, right? And there were people who helped me, people who pulled me out of that dark space, people who supported me, mentored me, sponsored me. And I definitely want to give back to the people who did those amazing things for me by give, you know, giving that same opportunity to others. And I think that it definitely does broaden my perspective of where people are coming from, right? I mean, this is a very distinct and very unique way of moving through the world, right? With, you know, immigrating like thousands Mm. of miles away from home, you know, losing a job with a young family, uh, you know, restarting kind of from scratch, you know, it gave me completely renewed respect and love and admiration for my wife, for my family, for the people, you know, the teachers who, you know, the people who gave me opportunities. And I think that I would be remiss, right, if I didn't kind of have that in the back of my mind. It, you know, it may not be the first thing I think of all the time, but there definitely have been times when I use that as a base, you know, as a platform to jump off of, because to me, that is what makes my story unique. And so therefore, it should make my approach unique, uh, you know, because other people may not have the privilege of, uh, you know, and I'm using the word privilege kind of ironically, but they don't have the privilege of having thought the way I did when I was in that time or when I was recovering from that time because they just didn't have that life experience. So if I can use that life experience to better somebody else's life experience, why not? Or if I can use that life experience to understand another person's experience and to kind of validate what they're feeling, why not? I've literally had people like sometimes when I validate individuals, when I'm interviewing them, I've had people cry during interviews because they've just never felt validated the way I can validate them because I understand their struggle. And, you know, and then they have to apologize. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. And like, you know, but 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 those are good tears. I welcome them. I welcome them because I think that we don't. I think that, you know, if you don't have someone who's understood what you're going through kind of validate you, then that validation means nothing. But when you do find someone who's had kind of a similar life experience or who may look like you or who may have gone through similar challenges like as you, then that validation is something pretty strong. Okay. Yeah. I, I like it. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. What What do you think then the future of pathology is going to be? I mean, do you think that we'll finally get the kind of the recognition that everybody seems to be really trying to push for right now? Uh, so I guess it depends on what you define recognition as. I think that will we become like the head honcho in medicine? No. You know, physicians have known about pathology, you know, since they started medical school, Uh, you know, so other physicians obviously respect us. It's not that they don't, but I I don't think that we'll become the sexiest field. I don't think not, not yet. But I think something is, is, is going to happen. One is that the pandemic has shifted a little bit of the understanding, like even for medical students about what the laboratory does. So I think that that we need to leverage as, as a field. Number two, as genetic and molecular pathology kind of increases and, you know, the use of it increases more and more in our diagnostic practice. 
I think that that will also continue to change the way people approach and view pathologists, right? So when you think of digital pathology, molecular pathology, and artificial intelligence, I think that all of these things are things that pathologists are going to be using as part of their toolkit, right, to make better diagnoses. So I think that will definitely and hopefully attract more medical students towards it because those are the kinds of things that younger you know, students are looking for because they see it as the future. So that type of change is happening in pathology. And, you know, while people assume that pathologists are, you know, these old people sitting in basements, etc. The reality is that pathologists have actually been kind of flexible, right? We've start, you know, you know, we started using cytogenetics and molecular genetics in our classification systems. You know, we when I immunohistochemical stains came out, we started using those, right? So we have been flexible. Our trajectory has been very open to using different ancillary tools. So I think that that will definitely continue to change and modify people's opinions, hopefully for the better for us in pathology. But I think that the major change is not going to come from within the medicine world. I think the major change will perhaps come from the patient world. I think patients are becoming savvier and savvier about, you know, what their diagnoses are, what they mean, you know, and kind of, you know, with the care, you know, the CARES Act, like the fact that they have access to information, they have access to the internet, uh, you know, and now more and more focus being given to patient-facing pathologists. I think that when patients start interacting with pathologists directly, which, you know, they are now in some pockets, or if patients start understanding what the pathologist's role is in their care, I think that is when the real change will actually happen. Because I think most changes in hospitals are, are patient-driven. I think the reason why pathologists or laboratorians aren't sexy is because we aren't seen by the patients. And so if we aren't seen by the patients, we're nowhere in the marketing. You know, the patients don't care about us that at, at all. But the reality is that should a patient care about what pathologist assistant cuts their lumpectomy? Heck yes, they they should, right? Because if the pathologist mm-hmm. assistant, you know, if if that gross room messes up their sample, everything is gone, right? I mean, we but we don't think of that. We think of nursing care and other care, of course, which is extremely important. And, you know, how good the surgeon is, you know, which is very, very important. But that's the stuff that the patient is directly sensing. There's a whole world of diagnostics that's happening behind the scenes, right? So should they care about which pathologist is going to look at their specimen, which laboratorian is going to spin down their sample, which pathologist assistant is going to gross their lumpectomy or whatever? I think that slowly and steadily, the world behind the scenes is becoming more apparent because people are becoming more powerful with more information. So I think that that may be where the change comes from. At least I'm keeping my fingers crossed because it's not that we want to overwhelm the whole medicine world by like our importance. But I think that we we do need to scale a little bit in giving us more, you know, not more uh, more respect or whatever. But I, I think that that right now, I don't think we even have the appropriate amount of uh, respect th- uh, for the work that we do. And I think that the tide is changing. Um, but I think it's a big boat, so it will uh, turn pretty slowly. But I think we're on the we're on the good side of the turn. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's great to have, you know, people like you that are kind of leading the way for for all of us. Dr. Mirza, this has been really interesting. I, I really enjoy, uh, he, you know, hearing about your kind of career path and the things that you're, that you're doing. And I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. So, Dr. Cameron Mirza. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. A huge thank you to Dr. Cameron Mirza. Here's a trailer right now of another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode.
because this is really meant for medical students, right, to be in their clinical rotations. So instead of going through gram positives, gram negatives, and you know, looking at the different diagnostic tests like you do for step one, we wanted to really try to cater this to, you know, actually what a microbiology lab does. What is important for a microbiology lab in terms of the, the blood sample or the, the, you know, the isolate, whatever it is, what's important for that lab. Uh -huh. And it's, it's definitely tough because it's, it, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the clinical microbiologists are, you know, basically sleeping at the hospitals working on this. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely worked on the intro part of that and the molecular diagnostic part of it. And we have uh, some other collaborators working on the enteric part and the respiratory part. But, you know, it's it's still a work in progress. And there's also some other things on the horizon, possibly an intro to microbiology, which would be kind of uh, what you could take in order to help you with medical um, or, you know, medical microbiology in general or medical coursework. So that's kind of in the work. To hear more from Cullen Lilly, including his role in Path Elective, check out episode 28. Dr. Mirza is such a great storyteller and he's a super nice guy on top of that. So it was really an honor to, to speak with him and I'm grateful that he was able to take some time in his busy day and, and talk with me. His story is really inspiring and it, it really shows the power of determination and collaboration as well. I'll have links in the show notes to a lot of Dr. Mears's work if you'd like to check that out. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and I know you are because the audience grows every week. So thank you for that. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of the other interesting podcasts. Whether this is your first episode or your 100th, and I know there are some of you out there that have been around since the beginning, thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.